Exodus chapter 15. We're going to read the text together, so if you would stand to your feet if you're physically able. This is Exodus 15, the last verses of the chapter, beginning in verse 22, Exodus 15. Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, Exodus 15, 22, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And so the people grumbled, 24, at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. There he made for them a statute and a regulation, and there he tested them. And he said, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God, do what is right in his sight. Give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians. For I, the Lord, am your healer. There's our title. Or I am Yahweh Rapha. And they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 date palms. And they camped there beside the waters. Let the Lord's word be written on our hearts. You may be seated. God bless you. Exodus 15, the Lord, our healer. Many of you have heard that the Lord has many different names. And one of the names that uh, is here in our text is Yahweh Rophe, literally, or Yahweh Rapha, Yahweh the healer. Some people have said that you could translate this as, I am Dr. Yahweh. I am your doctor. I am your healer. When the Lord Jesus Christ, the embodiment of God, came into this planet and he began to do his ministry, we know that he was a healer. If I were to ask you to respond to me, and you don't have to right now, and give me maybe the top couple of things that you would think about as you think about the ministry of Jesus, the earthly ministry of Jesus, I think most of you would say he was a teacher and he healed people. And his healing was beyond just physical healing. He healed the soul. He delivered people from demonic possession. He touched people, lepers, the blind, the lame, the deaf. Uh, He raised the dead. He was full of compassion, and he went around doing good. There are records in the Bible that say that Jesus healed people from morning till evening or all night long. We don't have records of all the different healings and the specifics of each case, but the Lord went around touching people. He wanted to heal people in the most significant ways, which is in ultimately in the soul. And as you know, if you've studied the Bible, that many of Jesus' miracles were also parables. They had a deeper lesson to them. For example, when he would heal a blind man, there was a deeper message. That is that the nation of Israel had become blind to God, blind to faith. And he wanted to open their eyes. When he unstopped deaf ears, it was about having our ears open to the word of God and the leading of God. When he raised the dead, it was a picture of a day that is coming when there will be a resurrection of both the living and the dead, or there will be a rapture and a resurrection, and so on and so on. The Lord is gracious. The Lord does heal. And when we talk about healing, it brings up all kinds of questions in our hearts. And we certainly have seen people call themselves faith healers and we've heard about people you know being prayed for and we've 
heard of miracles that do occur, and I've experienced some personal miracles and prayed for people where there have been miracles. But what do you do when the miracle doesn't happen? And here's the truth of the matter. The Lord doesn't always heal people physically. There will be an ultimate healing one day in God's presence in a new Jerusalem. We will have new bodies. The curse will be no more. But everyone that Jesus healed and touched physically, remember, they were healed of their immediate remedy, but they still would die of their last disease. So we have to be careful when it comes to healing. We don't have any guarantees God is sovereign, but we are called to pray. And God does what he does for his divine purposes. And sometimes it's perplexing, and I don't always understand it, but God is God. And here he identifies himself as our healer. We are moving uh, in our, and this is a short text for us this morning, away from the miracle of the Red Sea. Notice in verse 22, Moses, who was the leader of the people, and he led them out. He led Israel from the Red Sea. The Red Sea will take us back to those visions of the previous couple of messages where the Lord parted the sea and he opened up the way for Israel on dry ground. And then the Egyptian army went into the sea and they pursued and the Lord closed the sea on the Egyptian army. And on the other side of that miracle, there was a song, and we studied it last time we were together. It's called the Song by the Sea, or the Song of Moses. And the people of Israel began to sing it. And the main chorus is most likely these verses. It says, the Lord uh, hurled the horse and rider into the sea. Uh, verse 4 of chapter 15 says, The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Here's the exact language of 15.1. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. What an awesome, great victory this was. And the children of Israel were standing tall and singing their songs, and they had to feel so good. They had to feel like they were walking on air. But the question becomes, what do you do after the victory? And you guys know that after victories often come hard times. There comes defeats. There comes questions. What do you do after the church service? Well, we've all gotten excited and we've experienced people getting baptized and we've sung, sung our songs of redemption and we've celebrated the Lord and maybe we even looked at one another. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Horse and rider he hurled into the sea. You can imagine that the children of Israel were singing the song to one another way after the event. It was a hit song in Israel. The horse and rider hurled into the sea. Tambourines were probably still echoing in the air. People were dancing. They were singing. But then, all of a sudden, one day passed. And you can still sit here, the positive people still humming. <laughs> right? And maybe they're singing the song and humming the song. And, but then day two came. And now only the really positive people. You remember the song? The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. That's right. Horse and rider hurled into the sea. Day three. <laughs> when the song begins to fade, what do you do? What do you do when after the victory, after this incredible miracle, all of a sudden you've got no water? They say that you can survive about three days with no water. And it gets ramped up even more if you're in the desert of Egypt. 
And this is probably early summertime. So you can imagine one day, two days, three days with them, without the most essential thing we need for our bodies. We can go a long time without food. And some of you have practiced some fasting. But you know that we even usually typically drink water. To be three days into the wilderness with no water was a desperate situation. And I think all of us would admit that if we were three days and we started looking at our wife and our children and our livestock and started to kind of just survey the situation, I'm not sure our attitudes would be the best either. Let's face it, we've complained over much lesser things. I have this week. Can I get a witness? Anybody else? Complain for much lesser things. So here's Israel. Right off this incredible miracle, and there's no water. Three days with no water. And surely the, the question that is, you know, kind of bubbling up is why? We know what happens next is the wilderness wanderings of Israel. Notice there's a key phrase here. They went out, verse 22, into the wilderness. You might want to mark that. Into the wilderness, there's uh, much literature on something called the wilderness tradition or the wilderness wanderings of Israel. And out they go into something called the wilderness of Shur. The word Shur means a wall or a line or a fortress. And surely they had hit the wall or they felt walled in. And it was testing time for Israel. Remember, they were a young nation. Yes, they had seen mighty miracles, but they were young in faith. Uh, young in terms of their trust in the Lord. And so what would they do when now it wasn't a miracle? What would they do when deliverance didn't immediately come? How would they respond to the Lord? What do we do after the excitement of maybe something really good happening in our family or at work, seeing the Lord's hand move in a mighty way, maybe in some specific situation where you would just say, that was God. And maybe you had a new song in your heart and then you hit the wall and you find yourself in the wilderness. What do we do then? Can we still worship the Lord in the wilderness? Can we still worship the Lord when there's no water? One of the most basic essential needs that we have. I want to show you something in the Gospel of Mark. Hold your place in Exodus. This is something that was developed uh, by different scholars. But William Lane has written an incredible commentary on the Gospel of Mark. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament. And he points out that in verses uh, 3 through 13, or 14, actually 13, there are, uh, the word wilderness is mentioned four times. Let me just give you a couple of highlights. Mark 1, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight, Mark 1, 4. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, note that preaching a baptism of, re of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We get a little bit of a description about John and his diet. And then he says in verse 8, Mark 1, I baptize you with water, but he, Messiah, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So he came out to John in the wilderness there at the Jordan River, and he gets baptized. And immediately coming up out of the water... He saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon Jesus. And a voice came out of the heavens, the voice of the father. You are my beloved son. 
In you I am well pleased. Now in this idea of the wilderness tradition, it's been pointed out that when Jesus comes, he comes to identify with his people and to fulfill the four servant songs of Isaiah, but different passages. And I think scholars would say that the main verse of the gospel of Mark is Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is identifying with his people, and he's the ultimate servant, or he's the fulfillment of Israel in this sense. He does what the nation failed to do. Where they they failed the test, Jesus passes the test. Jesus had no need to be baptized. He did not have any sin that needed to be forgiven. He was without sin. But in his baptism, he identifies with his people as if to say, I am going to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And he submits to baptism. And 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says that the people of Israel, when they went through the Red Sea, they were baptized into Moses. They sang the song and then immediately they had a trial. Notice how Jesus' life patterns the same thing. He's baptized And immediately, 112 of Mark, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that just had come upon him, impelled him. That has compelled him to go out where? Into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, if you study those temptations that Jesus went through, Luke 4, Matthew 4 record that three temptations came to Jesus and three times he responded in the same way. It is written, it is written, it is written. And finally, Satan fled from him. Jesus used the word of God to fend off the enemy, something Israel failed to do. They failed the test. And so Jesus came to do for us and for them what we cannot do for ourselves because we would all have to admit that we've probably failed many tests, maybe even this week. Amen? We need a Savior. We need a Messiah. We need a saving God. And so the ultimate warrior comes to the planet, goes through his own baptism, identifying with his people, and then right into the wilderness, he faces the enemy, and he passes the test. This is our God. Notice the word wilderness, I pointed out, is in verses 3 and 4, 12 and 13, developing a wilderness tradition. A lot that could be said, but let me just read a couple things to you. By skillfully placing verses 8 and 9 next to each other, Mark portrays the enormous contrast between the baptism which the Lord is to perform and that to which he himself submits. Central in verse 8 is the giver of life, actively creating the people of God, In verse 9, it is the same one uh, in the role of the lowly, penitent, passively receiving the sign of repentance on behalf of the people of God. In submitting to John's baptism, Jesus acknowledges the judgment of God upon Israel. At the same time, his baptism signifies that his mission will be to endure the judgment of God, to drink the bitter cup, to fulfill where Israel failed. And so out into the wilderness he goes. He associates himself with sinners. He is not a sinner, but he becomes one of us. He becomes human. Divine mercy is shed abroad upon the people. He has come to heal us. By his wounds, we are healed. 
By the cross, he heals our souls. A couple of Hebrew words. Wilderness in Hebrew is midbar, if you're taking notes, just like it sounds, M-I-D-B-A-R. It speaks of an enormous wide place, almost like the picture of a desolate, lonely place. Midbar is also the idea of speech or language. It's a wilderness, but it's also the place of the word. In Jewish thought, if I gave you a piece of bread and you ate it, that piece of bread would go into your body and you would assimilate that. In the same way, in Jewish thought, words work the same. Instead of food going into the mouth, words go into the ear. And as you assimilate those words, they become a part of you. That's why we have to be careful what we listen to and what we watch. Here's the point. The wilderness is the idea of a lonely place where the word of God is maybe heard the clearest because everything else is stripped away. When we fast, for those of you who have fasted before, you might fast food. Sometimes, you know, maybe it's for a day or a couple of days. and You, you gotta be careful the way you do it and so forth. But here's the point. We strip away the things of the world or the things of the flesh, and we often say it's because I'm praying about something or I wanna be more in tune with the Spirit. I don't wanna listen to the flesh. I wanna listen to the Word of God. I want God's voice to be amplified in my life. This is the wilderness. It's a wide-open place where your ears become open to the word of God. And the wilderness will reveal more about God than perhaps any other place. But listen, it will also reveal more about you than any other place. Because when everything is stripped away, all of a sudden we gotta look at our own hearts. And sometimes what I see in my own heart in the wilderness ain't pretty. Can I get a witness? And so even this week, you know, I'm, I'm studying this passage and thinking, Lord, uh, it's so easy for me to groan about little things and, and, and so forth and get annoyed, and, and we all can relate. But it says in Acts 14, we must go through many hardships and enter the kingdom of God. And God shapes and molds in the wilderness. He has a divine purpose. Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 3 sums it up. All the commandments that I am commanding you today, Moses says, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers or your forefathers. And you shall remember all the ways which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, Deuteronomy 8.3, and he let you be hungry, and we could say thirsty too, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And interestingly enough, in one of Jesus' temptations, that's the very verse that he quoted to the enemy. And so the place of the wilderness is a place for the word. It's where God shapes and molds. It's where we go through testing and stretching. It's the place where Israel failed. When the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, in 1 Corinthians 10, it says, with most of the people of Israel, God was not well pleased, and they were laid low in the wilderness. And here comes Jesus to fulfill, to be the ultimate Israel, to be the answer to all that ails us. And out he goes into the wilderness. 
and he shares the word. One more Hebrew word. The word for word is davar, D-A-V-A-R. And it's something that gets placed in the ear, but in the Hebrew picture language, davar means, get this, the door into a person or the door of maturity. When you go out into the wilderness and things are stripped away and you're getting tested and the word of God comes in, it will reveal to you where you're at spiritually. You'll be able to assess your spiritual maturity and it will stretch and grow you. If everything in life was the wilderness, we'd have the life sucked right out of us, right? We need pleasant places and we're gonna talk about that. We're gonna talk about sweet places and good times. But if we always had the good times, if we always had a place called Elam, which we'll talk about at the end of this message, a place of palms and abundance and easy chairs, then we would be soft. And so God is in the business of stretching his people. And his ultimate goal is to make us more like Jesus or to make us holy. And there is healing in holiness. Because what holiness does is it gets all the toxins out of your life. So you can listen to God, so he can shape your life. What do we do after the miracle? What do we do after the church service? Back to Exodus chapter 15. Well, the people of Israel go out into the desert, and God is leading them. The cloud has not uh, disappeared. He is faithful to guide. He is there. And they came to a place called Marah. Three days with no water. Desperation. You see this place described as the waters of Marah. It may have been named that later as a result of what happened here. And you have to be thinking, there's the answer. Maybe you thought, maybe you said to a friend or a family member, man, I didn't do so great on day three, but look, there it is. There's waters and it's, and it's multiplied. It's plural. Maybe it was waterfalls and streams, and you're thinking, yeah, there it is. It's not a mirage. It's real. And off you run with your containers. You dip it in. You take a drink, but you go, because the waters were bitter. And you might be thinking to yourself, what a dirty trick to have three days with no water and get to this place that looks like it's gonna take care of all of our needs only to drink it. It would be almost be like someone who's been floating on the sea and their only option is to drink seawater. You ever taken in some seawater? In Israel, there's a place in the southern part of Israel called the Salt Sea of Salt or the Dead Sea. It has a 23% mineral content. So if you go to the Dead Sea or the Sea of Salt, they say, um, you can float there, and I've been there a couple of times, but only for 15 minutes. The mineral content is so high that they sell Dead Sea products all over. You can put on one of those mud masks, you know, and it's supposed to make your skin like baby skin, but you can't exceed 15 minutes or it will begin to suck the life right out of you. And you don't dare drink the water because if you drink that 23% mineral content, you're going to be in trouble. You know how they say, don't drink the water, man. <laughs> Montezuma's revenge. This would be Mara's revenge right here. And so you drink the water, but you got to spit it out. It's bitter. And you look, and there's the glory cloud, and there's Moses. And you're like, how could it be that the God that just gave us victory and gave us a new hit song, and he's a mighty warrior, and he hurled them into the sea, has us at this kind of place? But the Lord has led them right here. Is it possible that the Lord can lead us 
to bitter places for his purposes? The answer is yes. And God has his reasons. And so they began to try to drink the water, but they couldn't drink it. And it would appear from the reading of the text, the name was then given to it as Mara, the waters of Mara, because they were bitter. Mara was almost like a mirage. And when they spit the water out, I'm sure that panic began to set into the nation. I'm sure that the questions of why began to bubble up. And here's what happens next, and it's easy to see. So the people grumbled. The Hebrew word is lean. You could transliterate it L-E-E-N. At Moses, they literally lodged a complaint. They murmured at Moses, and they said, what shall we drink? Now, I don't see that this is an illegitimate question. And sometimes when we read our Bibles as Christians, we, we go like this. Oh, those Israelites. So whiny. But look, they hadn't had water for three days, brethren. And we have most creature comforts at our beck and call. Usually we're debating about what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, and what we're going to wear. Not if we can eat something or drink something, at least for most of us. And so here they are. And they lodged the complaint to Moses. And they whine and they complain about it. And they grumbled. Grumbling is an interesting word. Uh, in the Greek language, it's a word called gogusmas, gangusmas. Philippians 2.14 says, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Everybody read that? I I'm looking for loopholes in this verse. Uh, but I think it says all things, do all things. Have you ever tried to go a week without grumbling or complaining? How about a day? How about an hour? We might be surprised how much we complain without even realizing what we're doing. And gangusmas, the word for murmur, is an interesting word because it's a word that sounds like the meaning. And Greek scholars say if you want to get the idea of the, the meaning of the word, you kind of lower your voice and you start to say gangusmas, 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 gangusmas. And it's like you're complaining under your breath. Complaints under your breath are still complaints. Even if you don't speak them out loud. Ah, rats. Some years ago, I worked at a printing plant. And I worked with a man that I would have to say, at least at this time in his life, was probably the most negative and bitter person I've ever met in my life. And I worked side by side with him for at least eight hours a day in a printing plant. And I would watch him go around to different people and go, gangusmas, 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 and usually he was pointing at me. <laughs> and he went around and sowed bitterness into that company. And if you drink bitter waters long enough, brethren, you yourself will become bitter. And a root of bitterness will spring up in your life and defile many people. Be careful who you hang around with and who you let speak into your life because we can take that on. And I, and I found myself getting negative around this person and toward him as well. 1 Corinthians 10.10 10 says, don't grumble as some of them the Israelites did and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to Israel as an example and they were written for our instruction upon the whom the ends of the ages have come. 
The New Testament church has the wilderness wanderings to learn lessons from the negative example of Israel. And negative examples can motivate us to not repeat those mistakes. So the people grumbled. And I will tell you something that I think is obvious to most of us, but I'll say it because it's worth saying. Murmuring and complaining is a sign of immaturity. When Paul wrote to to the Corinthian congregation, he said to them, I wanted to give you solid food, but I had to give you milk because you're still babies in Christ. And he says, there's divisions among you. There's jealousy among you. Some of you say I'm of Paul and some of you say I'm of Apollos and some of you say I'm of Peter. And he says, are you not acting like mere men? What makes you different? You're supposed to be the church of Jesus Christ. So when I first started playing the drums, I was playing the drums on a worship team in the early 90s. And we went off to this church and we were gonna play like a Sunday evening uh, worship set. And so this pastor, um, the band played and I played the drums and the keyboard player was playing a little bit, you know, softly behind the pastor, uh, just, you know, kind of as just to, to encourage. And I remember the pastor turning to the keyboard player and said, don't play that anymore. But actually, that pastor, he was an interim pastor trying to bring healing to a divided congregation. Everybody was mad at each other. There was tension that you could cut with a knife in that room. This is what happens among the people of God. Complaints were lodged, uh, this or that. The pastor left, something happened, and people were just sitting there like this. Gongusmas, gongusmas, gongusmas. It was ugly, man. And that's the last thing that we want to see happen. And so the question becomes, how did Moses respond? There's a lesson in his response. It's in verse 25. The one that was leading them could have said, oh, you bunch of whiners, (laughs) which we're often tempted to do, right? I have to admit that when I was talking about that coworker, I had a couple of ugly scenes with him. I was a very young man and we squared off a couple of times and I was fed up with this guy. I heard Pastor Chuck Smith tell a story. He said that when he was, he'd be working on his sermon in his office at home, he'd hear uh, his kids fighting in the next room. And rather than going out and just trying to immediately break it up, he said, I would begin to pray in my office. He would try to find a spiritual solution first to a real life problem. And that's where most of us fail. Because we come in and we think we can fix it this way or that way and we often don't even pray about things and then we wonder why things have unraveled. A day hemmed in prayer won't unravel. Amen? For all of you sowers out there. But we all know that we often don't hem our days in prayer. And even when we do, life is still a challenge. And so Moses, rather than bickering back, cried out to the Lord. This is leadership and I want to learn this lesson as well. And when he cried out to the Lord, 25, the Lord showed him, that's a form of the Hebrew word Torah, has the idea of he instructed or taught him. He showed him a tree. The Hebrew word is ETS, etz. It's tree or a piece of wood. Literally in Hebrew, it's he showed him the tree. And Moses threw it into the bitter waters of Marah and the waters became sweet. And the answer was found in a tree. It wasn't answered in a change of location. You know, sometimes we deal with a bitter circumstance and 
We're tempted to just say, well, I'm moving on to another body of water then, or I'm going over here, or I'm not going to put up with this anymore. This will solve my problems. But the Lord didn't move them. He changed the water. And perhaps that's a symbol to us that sometimes what has to happen is not a relocation per se, but a change of our hearts. Maybe the problem is right here, that I become bitter and I need to become sweet by the living water coming back into my heart, flooding my heart. I've been there many, many times. And so he came to the tree. The word could be branch. The Messiah is called a righteous branch of David in Jeremiah 33, 15. But here's what we know. The tree was a healing tree. God did the miracle, of course, but he used the tree. One writer says, this reminds us of some other trees in the Bible. The life-giving tree in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 2, 9 The tree of life in the new Jerusalem, which leaves were for the healing of the nations, Revelation 22, 2. And especially the tree on which Jesus was crucified, the tree that heals our bitter, bitter sin. God seems to specialize in trees of healing. We can't be dogmatic on the message here, but it is interesting that the tree becomes the source of healing. And I was reading a commentator this week who said that somebody's come up with some medical information that a certain tree at this location, perhaps thrown into the percentile of minerals in this body of water, might have done just enough to cause good water to rise to the surface, but the good water would have the right mineral content to protect Israel for the rest of their wilderness uh, journeys and help their tummies and all of that. I don't have any idea if that's true. I don't even know how he came to that conclusion, although it sounded pretty scientific. Here's what we know. The water became drinkable, and I'm sure they began to drink it down, and it was the sweetest water one could imagine. And a tree was what brought the healing. And I think of the cross of Jesus Christ, how Jesus drank the bitter cup to bring sweet deliverance to us, to bring sweet release, how he drank the cup of Mara to give the blessing of salvation to us. The waters were bitter, but then they were sweet. And Israel was tested there. He made for them a statute, end of 25, and a regulation. And there, God tested them. That means he put them to the proof so that they could see what was in their hearts. Do you think they liked what they saw after that first test? One writer said they were attending Wilderness University. And right now, we live between the times, between the first and second comings of Jesus. We're not in the promised land yet. And let's face it, we're on a pilgrimage, and we are in the wilderness. And the wilderness can be tough and difficult, but that's where God stretches us. You guys remember the story in the book of Ruth? It's about a woman named Naomi. Her name means sweet or pleasant. And she had a husband and some sons, and there was a famine. There was no water, no food in uh, Bethlehem where she lived, where Jesus would be born later. And so her husband let her out, and they went to the land of Moab. And unfortunately, her husband dies, and both her sons who had married Moabite women, they both die. She's lost her husband and her two sons. All that's left to her is two foreign Moabite daughters-in-law, but now she doesn't even have sons for them, so... They're gone. So there's a tearful uh, departure. They hear that the Lord has visited his people in the land of Israel. And uh, Naomi is going to make an exodus back to the Holy Land. And she tells her daughters-in-law, don't come with me. I got nothing to give you. 
stay in your homeland and rebuild your lives. And one of them says, okay, it's very, very tearful, a woman named Orpah. And then Ruth says, no, I'm going with you. Where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. Where you live and die, I will live and die. So off they go, and they come into this land of Bethlehem, the house of bread, the future birthplace of the Messiah. And when they came into town, the city was stirred, Ruth 119, and the women said, isn't that Naomi? Isn't that sweet? And she said, don't you call me Naomi. You call me Mara, because the hand of the Lord has been heavy against me. You call me bitter. Don't you call me by that name. And the two women settle down, and they have nothing. But if you know the story, Ruth goes out into a field. She begins to glean, and by God's providential hand, she runs into a man named Boaz, and he's the kinsman redeemer, and he's going to redeem the women and the land and everything, and Ruth and Boaz fall in love, and it's a love story, and all of a sudden, God begins to restore back to Naomi all the bitterness becomes sweet again. And the end of the story goes like this. Boaz marries Ruth. A baby is born, a new blessing. And there's a picture of uh, Naomi taking the baby. And it's almost like she adopted the baby because that's what all grandparents pretty much do, right? And the baby's name is Obed. The baby is the grandfather of David, who, from whose line comes the Messiah. You, talk, you want to talk about turning something bitter into something that would be sweet living waters for generations to come? Now, those women had no idea what God was doing, and they probably still had their share of questions. But a woman whose name was sweet saw God work, take the bitter things and redeem and give a grandchild from whom the Messiah would come. His name means one who serves, and that's what the Messiah came to do, to serve. Keith Green says it well. There is a redeemer, Jesus, God's own son, precious lamb of God, Messiah, holy one. Thank you, my father, for giving us your son and leaving your spirit till your work on earth is done. J. Vernon McGee, who battled cancer, he's that sweet southern voice that you hear on the radio. He's long since gone home to be with the Lord. He dealt with his own cancer, and he said, you may not realize it, but the oasis at Mara is the normal Christian experience. When bitter experiences come to a Christian, it is puzzling and perplexing. In the pathway of every believer, there is Mara, and God has arranged it all. Someone has said disappointments are God's appointments. And McGee says, I have found this to be true in my own life. Perhaps you find yourself in a place like Mara. And you're wondering, well, can God make the waters of my life sweet again? Maybe you have a broken relationship. Maybe you're feeling unstable. Maybe you're emotionally overwhelmed by what's going on in the world. Maybe you feel like you can't take much more. And bitter, 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 it, it's like it's the word. But it doesn't have to be. God can turn the water sweet. Without moving you, he can just touch it by the power of the cross, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Psalm 34, 8, how blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 119, 103 says, how sweet are your words to my taste, Lord. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I, I suppose it would be good, you know, all of us would think that maybe the best thing is to go from the miracle of the Red Sea right to the promised land, but God is not into shortcuts. He's working. And even though I don't always get it, and I don't always know why I end up in a wilderness place, whether it's physical or otherwise, I know my God is faithful, and he's molding and shaping me into the image of his son and preparing me for the promised land. And so here's the statute that was given to Israel. This is the takeaway from Mara. If you will give earnest heed, 26, to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I put on the Egyptians. For I, the Lord, am your healer. I am Yahweh, Rophe, or Rapha. Obedience was their test. How did they do? Not so good. That whole generation perished in the wilderness except for a couple of people. Brethren, this is why we need Jesus. He passed the test. Jesus heals us. God reveals himself as Yahweh Rapha, the God who heals, the God who provides. In the Old Testament, Rapha or Rophe refers to wellness and soundness, both physically and spiritually. It means to restore, to heal, and cure, not only in the physical sense, but in the moral and spiritual sense also. He heals the bitter waters. He's the doctor of our salvation. Brethren, this hit me this week. Holiness is healing. Because much of what God is trying to do in our lives is preventative medicine. Please hear what I'm about to say. I know it's always wonderful when we hear miracle stories and God does still heal and he's sovereign over healing. But would to God that we would take the preventative medicine of not getting ourselves to the point where we're in such deep trouble that we're boxed into a corner. Now, sometimes that's unavoidable, but you guys get what I'm saying. We had a doctor here at the first service, and I kind of winked at him, because I know what he does. He does preventative uh, stuff with the diet and with exercise, and he's trying to keep people from getting sick. That's part of what God is saying here. But we're in a fallen world, and sometimes we're gonna end up in that situation. And even then, the Lord will be gracious. The promise here, says another writer, was not that Yahweh would never allow those who place their faith in him to get sick. It was that the Israelites would be free from having to worry about the plagues. It was, an, it was also an assertion that it was to him they must turn for healing if they ever found themselves afflicted as a result of sin. The story of healing from the snake bites in Numbers 21 is exactly the sort of situation envisioned by these words. If you're taking notes, write down Deuteronomy 7, 12 through 15, and Deuteronomy 28, 58 through 63. Let me just tell you what they say. God says, if you obey me, things will be well with you. You'll live a long life, etc. If you disobey me, these are general principles, then you're gonna have plagues and problems and the like. Now, I'm gonna 
preach for about another five minutes, but what I'm about to say is extremely important. And I gotta take you to one more passage, and it's 2 Chronicles 7. We'll have it up on the screen, I think, for you here, but I want you to go there because this is the verse that we always quote in our prayer meetings over our nation. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, etc. right? It's, it happened around the dedication of the temple, Solomon's temple. God spoke these words to Solomon. Pick it up with me, 2 Chronicles 7, 12. The Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, 2 Chronicles 7, 12. I've heard your prayer and I've chosen this place for myself, the temple, as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, what's your Bible say? And will heal their land. He's our healer. Now keep reading. Now my eyes shall be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house, the temple, that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. And as for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, even to do according to all that I've commanded you and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with your father David, saying you shall not lack a man to be ruler in Israel, 19. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and shall go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot you from my land, which I have given you, and this house, which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight and will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. As for this house, which was exalted, everyone who passes by will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And they will say, because they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them from the land of Egypt, and they adopted other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this adversity on them. Brethren, if we are going to ask the Lord to heal our families, back to Exodus and we'll finish it, to heal our land, to heal this country, to heal this state, and we thumb our nose at his commandments. And I'm not saying that commandments and works save you, but I'm saying, generally speaking, the principles of scripture, when we redefine things that God has made, when we thumb our nose in his face to the sacredness of life, and then we say, oh, heal our land, and we have an hour and 15 minute church service where we think that's gonna fix it. It ain't. In 70 AD, that temple fell and some people call it the second or third temple. The Solomonic temple fell. The temple in Jerusalem fell, never to be rebuilt again. And it is a constant testimony of this fact. The Lord will honor people who honor him. And if you won't honor him and you kick him out of your nation, he will say, then I will leave you with the consequences of what you've decided to do. Would to God that we say, oh Lord, heal me, heal my heart, and heal this land. Amen? It's the truth, brethren. And so they came to Elam, final verse, where there were 12 springs, maybe for the 12 tribes, 
70 date palms, and they camp beside the waters. Elam means a place of abundance or large trees. It was an oasis. They came to this place of, you could say, living water, set up an easy chair, give me one of those drinks with, you know, fruity drink with the umbrella, and I'm staying here. And it's Elam, the place of abundance. And that's where the chapter ends. From the bitter waters turned sweet to a place of abundance, a place to rest and recharge. This is what God does, and he's so good and gracious to do it. So this week I'm studying this passage, and I'm in bed reading a commentary. I'm with my wife. It's okay. We're married. And, <laughs> and I come across this name, Elam, which is only in the Bible a handful of times. And I can't tell you I've thought much about Elam for years. And I went, I go, Elam, Elam, that's ringing a bell to me somehow. And I went, <gasps> and the hair on my arms begins to stand up because here's what's happening. Tonight, a pastor is visiting us from Chicago who pastors a Pentecostal Romanian Christian church called Elam Pentecostal Christian Fellowship. And I went, oh my goodness. Brethren, we, Miracle helped us with this. We had to try to lock a date in with this guy. I teach chunks verse by verse through the book of Exodus. I really have no plan. I don't even know what I'm going to do tomorrow, right? I, what I meant is, I'm not planning this out. Oh, we're going to do this, and it'll be Elam on this. No, no, none of that. And I think God was saying this to me. Michael, I know where you've been. I know where you're going. I know the bitter waters that you've faced. I know the sweet times that you've experienced. I'm going before you. I will be your rear guard. I know the battles that you're fighting, and I will be your abundance and your supply. Amen? Amen? George Matheson says, I trace the rainbow through the rain. So we have lunch with Pastor Christian, and the worship team can come on up behind me and Friday, get to know him. He's a wonderful guy, and he can talk, and uh, he's a preacher. You're going to really enjoy him tonight. And I said, Pastor, why did you guys, and I told him the story, and I said, why did you choose Elam? And he said, Pastor Michael, we had a handful of names, and we, I put it to the people, and we, we prayed and talked about it, but we ended up at Elam because we as a church want to be a place that when people walk through our doors, they find healing and restoration. The abundance of the Holy Spirit is there, the abundance of love. They can get out of that crazy world and find a place of refuge, an Elam. I thought, how beautiful. God, make us an Elam to our culture. And they tried to shut down Pastor Christian's church, and they blocked his parking lot in Chicago so people couldn't go to church. And he said, we just want to be Elam. We just want to give the hope and the healing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And tonight we're going to hear his story. And God, our God is good. We can't close the doors. People need the healing of the gospel. Yes, be wise. Yes, be careful. Yes, if you're sick, stay home. But in the end, the church has a chance to be Elam to this world. Help us, O oh Lord. Let us never forget that every time we open those doors and look, I think more than any time in our history, it's a privilege to open those doors. Let us be Elam to a hurting and broken world. Father, 
Help us to be a healing people to others. We can't heal people, but you can. The healing waters of the Holy Spirit, the power of the cross. Jesus, you drank the bitter cup to release the sweet waters of salvation. One day we will be in Elam. One day the tree of life will be there for the healing of the nations. There will be no more death, no more tears, no more sorrow. The curse will be no more. Elam is coming. And that heartens my soul. And yes, we're in the wilderness, Lord, and there's times that we find oasis in the desert, and we're so grateful for those times. Help us not rush past those. But when we experience our maras, help us know you're still there. And you can turn the bitter into something sweet. Encourage that person who finds himself right at those waters and is like, really? I don't know if I can take much more. Encourage them that you will see them through. If you're not a Christian, I don't know what more I could say other than trust the Lord, repent of your sin, believe that Jesus entered our pain and passed the test, trust him for your salvation. You can't save yourself. You can't heal yourself, but he's the healer. He wants to heal your soul. Trust him. Cry out to him, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. I believe you entered into our pain. Live the perfect life. Pray it if it's you. I believe you died on that terrible cross and drank that bitter cup for me, though you were innocent. I believe you conquered the grave and defeated death and showed who you are. Be my king. Be my God. Be my savior. Be the one that guides me as my Lord. Father, let healing waters flow out to anyone who's opening their heart in prayer whether they're a committed believer, a backslidden Christian, or a brand new believer, let your living water flow out to your people. Bring that sweetness. Brethren, just let the word of God, just let it go down into your soul just for a moment. Receive it for you. Thank you, Father. We love you. Thank you for your people. Strengthen us for the wilderness places ahead of us. Strengthen us and help us be thankful for the sweet times we enjoy. We love you. In Yeshua's name, we pray.